Thank you, Pastor. Am I on? Okay, great. All right. Well, what is purpose is a question that we all ask ourselves. In fact, I think whether my life has purpose is the big question of life. So for many of you that don't kind of know my story, uh, as Jeff said, um, I own Tedford Insurance. It's a second generation business. My dad started it in 1978. And uh, so we grew up um, with the business. You know, he just assumed that me and my two brothers would go into the family business. We never really spent a whole lot of time thinking about, you know, what uh, job we should get. It was always, we're going to go into the business. And so, as some of you may know, my dad passed away when I was 35, and so me and my two brothers took over the business at that time. And uh, in addition to feeling, you know, the obligation and responsibility of taking over the family business, there was a recognition that at that point we had really not explored the fact of what we really wanted to do. And at that moment, we had really the freedom and resources to explore that question. And so I did pour myself into this question of how does one find purpose? How does one find calling in their Christian faith? Uh, And then I came up with a talk that I actually have given in um, business settings um, a couple times, several times. Uh, And I'm excited about this opportunity to address it from a purely Christian perspective. So I hope uh, this gives you some fresh perspectives about uh, your purpose, your calling, and your calling. Now, there's really two questions as far as to talk about what is the ultimate purpose of life. And the first one is, is there an ultimate purpose of life? I think it's part of the human experience that, yes, life does have purpose or should have purpose. Um, In a 2020 Barna survey, And asking uh, Americans, uh, does life have purpose? 86% of Americans said, yes, life does have a universal purpose. Uh, And what's interesting in reading through business and psychology literature, you'll see overwhelmingly they'll say that purpose isn't, or feeling of purpose is important to live a fulfilled life and that people who live with a sense of purpose um, are less stressed, are happier, um, they're more productive, and actually live longer, as in a University of Rochester study showed. Uh, But sadly, in the United States and around the world, you see that people don't live with a sense of purpose. In a 2008 Stanford survey, only 20% of Americans under the age of 30 said they had a sense of purpose and meaning in their life. In a British survey, only 11% of those under 30 said they had a sense of purpose, and even Adults over age 60, only 45% said they had a sense of meaning to their life. So again, very sad. Um, so then the second question is, once we establish that there is, it should be a purpose, is what is the purpose of life? What is, you know, what gives purpose to life? And so I thought I would first approach it from what does God say about purpose? And what does God say the purpose of life is? What does the Bible say? So I'm going to refer to the Westminster Catechism. Some of you may know what that is. Um, And the question number one in the Westminster Catechism, so it, you know, says, hey, this is the big question here. It says, what is the chief and highest end of man? And that answers, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. And so this, they back it up with the scripture references of of Romans 11.36, 
for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom glory be glory forever. Amen. And also, 1 Corinthians 10.31 is whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the purpose of life by Scripture is God's glory. But then there's the question of how do we as Americans answer this question, what is the purpose of life? And going back to the 2020 Barna survey, uh, it said that 23% of Americans, the number one answer, and only 23% of Americans answered experiencing happiness and fulfillment is the number one purpose of life. God came in at number two, but only at 18%. And you can see the other answers were evolving to our full potential, furthering development of humanity, and living a long and healthy life were on there. Not much consensus on what it was, and again, not too many people agreeing with the Westminster Catechism and Scripture. When uh, Pew Research did the same type of survey in 2017, they asked the open-ended question, what provides you with meaning? Uh, And 69%, the number one answer was spending time with family. With career, 34%, then money, uh, then faith, again, down at 20%. Um, So uh, not a whole lot of people answering in line with Scripture. And then final question I'll bring out from the Pew Research was the question of, is religious most important thing? Is religion the most important thing to you? And only 20% of all Americans said, yes, religion is the most important thing to me. Christian community did a little better, you know, um, but still 45% of evangelicals saying that their religion is the most important thing uh, is not very high. And so as you see that um, as Christians even, we're not really answering this question of purpose from a biblical perspective. We're not seeking God in our purpose. And I think that's why us as Christians and maybe as culture suffer from a lack of sense of purpose in our lives. Now, I think a high, the fact that Christianity has a high view of purpose is the reasons why we should believe that Christianity is true. Because at, at one point we have this inner sense that there should be a purpose to life. We've already seen that purpose is needed to live a fulfilled life. But then Christianity is really the only worldview that ha- grounds purpose that provides a grounding for it. Uh, you can boil all the main worldviews uh, um, around the world down to mainly three, and that's the Eastern perspective, the secular, and the Judeo-Christian perspective. And the Eastern perspective, they don't really have a creation story, and they view purpose as kind of an illusion. And in fact, um, the sense of enlightenment comes from giving up that there even is a purpose. From a secular worldview, Creation is just by chance, so they deny that there's a creator. And and denying there's a creator, they deny for themselves a greater purpose for life because, you know, you can't have calling without a caller. And so what's interesting is the nihilist um, philosophers around the turn of the 20th century realized that their um, a secular atheist perspective didn't really provide for ultimate purpose, and they realized that was very depressing. And so they came up with the fact that even though we know that our, our approach does not give ultimate purpose, we can make as humans our own purpose. And so I think if you look in um, culture today, you'll see this sentiment everywhere. It's definitely the predominant view about purpose is 
we can create our own purpose. And some would even say this is a good thing because it gives us the freedom to do what we want. Frederick Nietzsche said, everyone can have their own path and the greatest path is going out and not knowing where you're going because then you can just go where you want to go. Um, and so what's interesting is if you think about um, like a compass, which is something we use to help us find direction, is that the reason it can provide direction is because it's tied to true north and it's always pointing to true north. But if we take that magnet and stick it on our own back, how can it lead us anywhere? And so... Um, Appealing to Scripture, Jeremiah 10, 23 says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, and that is not in man who walks to direct his steps. And so I think what's, what you see is left to our own, left to ourselves, we end up not really being able to find purpose in our life and finding anything meaningful to live our life by. And again, I think that's one of the reasons why we see people not finding a sense of meaning in their life today. And so it's with this context that I want you to appreciate the biblical doctrine of purpose as we draw it out. Because I really think that the real question is not necessarily what is the ultimate purpose of life, but what is my purpose and what is my calling? That's really what we're interested in. And I think Scripture provides a very rich basis for this. There's two key points I want to draw out from what Scripture says, and one is that God has a plan for each and every one of us. And the second thing is that God has also gifted us to fulfill that plan. And so let's start out at Jeremiah 29, 11. And it says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You can see that God's purpose gives us a sense of a future and a hope. Then 1 Corinthians 7, 17, it says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, God has called each. And this manner, let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. So God has assigned to each one of us a purpose. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. So in the New Testament, as many of you know, there's this concept of the body of Christ, that, uh, that each of us as members have different parts in that body. Each of us fit in a particular place. And so we'll draw that out later, but there's a the concept of purposes fitting together in God's master plan. Also, 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So God saw our purpose and saw where we fit in, even from the beginning of time. Very powerful. And then lastly, Acts 17, 26. And he, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. I love this scripture because here's Paul talking to a pagan Greek audience on Mars Hill, and he brings this out. He says, determined allotted periods and boundaries of the dwelling place. And so it means that not only did God have a plan for you, but he determined where you're to live, when you're to live. So it's not a mistake that you're here, right here, right now. I think that's very powerful. So again, God has given us a plan, but he's also gifted us 
specifically to fulfill that plan. This is brought out in Exodus 35, 30. It says, And then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God and with skill and with intelligence and with knowledge and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for settings and carving wood and for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oheliab, the son of Ahisamach, the tribe of Dan, and has filled them with skill to do every work of done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine-tooled yarns or by a weaver or by any sort of workman and skilled designer. And here's God has a plan. I'm going to build my tabernacle. And I'm going to give these guys all the skill they need to design all kind of wonderful things. And so what I like about this verse too is that this is stuff done by hand. These skilled guys doing crafts work, craftsman work, you know, stuff done by hand. Romans 12, 6 through 8, says, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If in serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then to give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do it diligently. And if it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. I like this verse because it shows specific gifting in different areas and says, look, if your gifting is here in teaching, then you should be teaching. You know, if it's in serving, you need to be over here serving. And so he shows how our gifting fits with what our purpose is. The last part of scripture I'll talk about is the parable of the talents. And I don't want to read the whole parable because it's long and time is short. Um, but I'll summarize, as you know, that the master gives three servants varying degrees of uh, resources um, to work for him. One gets 10 talents, one gets five talents, one gets one, or another place it's five, two, and one. And so what I want to bring out of this is that it does show that God as master is, in the analogy of the parable gives gifts and resources, you know, to his servants. Um, those resources were financial in nature, which is very interesting, for them to work in trade, you know, um, so they were to go out and gain more uh, money with that. The master gave them limited direction. He didn't really specifically tell them everything, every part what to do. He said, go out and gain more. Uh, some people got more and some got less. I think this is very interesting. And this is kind of a, a hard message for us today. We don't want to hear about some getting more and some getting less. But that's the, what the scripture says. And that's how it is. Some people... Uh, get more of this resource than others. Some people get more talent over here than others. That's the way it is. But it's an accountability to us that we're accountable to what we've been given. And so um, very important points uh, that I'll draw out also later as I, as I go on. But the parable of talents is, does show that God has gifted us to fulfill our plan. So I want to talk about now applying all this scripture uh, to our calling and our work. And first, I want to start off and talk about just some paradigms about our work. Um, because for most of us, um, our calling is at our secular jobs and not in the full-time ministry. And so um, the main biblical paradigm about work that I want to say is that we're made to work. 
Um, you know, we're made in God's image, it says in Scripture. And so God in Scripture is a worker. He creates the world. He, uh, he creates the universe. And Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 17 says, My Father is working until now, and I'm also working. So it, it's talked about God being a worker. Also, uh, in many places in Scripture, we're commanded to work. You know, many Christians think that Adam was uh, punished with work because of the fall. And that's why he has to work. But that's not true. Adam was given the command to tend the garden before he fell. And then when he fell, it was the ground that was cursed to make the work harder, that the command to tend the garden remained the same. And so I think that's a very important point. Uh, The biblical command for work is that work is our duty and work is also our witness to the world. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command that if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Ephesians 4.28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What I like about this verse is that it talks about the fact of another um, need for work is that how can we help others if we don't have anything ourselves and we get those resources mainly through work. And then last, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12 says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we have instructed you that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So you see here that working with our hands is part of walking properly in the world. And to be dependent on no one is walking properly. And so, again, there's the biblical commands that we're made to work. One of the things that's interesting is that this concept of work we find in the Bible is really not shared by the world. The, the common paradigm in the world of work is that work is a means to an end. And I think it's grounded in, uh, actually, I think Aristotle. Aristotle said that... Uh, Work was a punishment of the gods and that our, the chief end of man is leisure and then we should seek leisure and do as little work as possible. Um, my, um, my daughter went to Baylor and, and you have to take a foreign language at Baylor and so she took French and so the Fr- her French teacher made a comment about the French word for work which is travailler, if I said it right, uh, which the root word in English is travail. And so he made kind of a side comment that that's kind of how uh, the French look at work. It's a hardship, it's a necessary evil, and you should just do enough work to get money to then go do what you do for fun. And so that's the kind of uh, the, the view of work. And so, again, a means to an end. And so I think that that is not in line with what we see in Scripture. And so in Scripture, what we see is work is our calling. And so, which is interesting is in addition to trying to find our purpose in um, our Christian walk, we have this added component of calling. So it's not only what do I do for work, but how does my faith fit into what I do for work? And so, again, in the Christian paradigm is that our work is our calling. Our work is our ministry for most of us. Uh, Most of us are not going to be in the full-time ministry, and what our call to do is to be salt and light in the world. 
And so there are some, in the church, some bad paradigms about work, I think. One is would be the, uh, what I would call the sacred-secular split. And this comes from a fourth century Catholic monk named Eusebius, who said that the only work that is meaningful is sacred work. And so everyone should strive to do sacred work. Of course, it's fourth century, so everyone should, should um, look to pray and sing hymns and work in, you know, be uh, in the monastery, uh, and that everything outside of, um, you know, sacred work is, uh, doesn't have meaning to God. Uh, and I think this part of this thinking lingers with us today, uh, and that sometimes we struggle to see how our work really fits in with our ministry and how, um, uh, how that is part of our calling. And so it leads uh, to a feeling that the value of work is only the value to make money to then to tithe back into the church and pay for families' needs and that type of thing. Again, making work a means to an end uh, instead of something that's an end unto itself. Now, what's interesting is um, Martin Luther and the Reformers rejected this, and they said it's not in Scripture that only ministry work or work in the church has value. And they said that the milkmaid's job is, is just as important as the priest's. And that the Christians shouldn't be cloistered up in the monastery all the time, but they should be out in the world being salt and light. And so, and that everything, and that secular work does have value. I think it's interesting, uh, Dorothy Sayers brought out um, this point, I think, very effectively in talking about the difference in length and time between Jesus' public ministry and what you could say is his, was his regular job. And so, as you know, Jesus' public ministry uh, by scripture, started about age 30s, about three years, uh, but he was a carpenter by trade, as was their family business. And so around that time, probably uh, about 12 years old is when maybe, let's say, someone would join the family business. So it's, not, it's reasonable to think that Jesus worked 18 years from 12 to 30 making tables and then started his public ministry, which he worked three so six times longer, Jesus made tables than he worked in his, pub, in his public ministry. And this wasn't a surprise to God. It wasn't uh, something that God thought was a waste or a shame. This is what God ordained in Jesus' life. And so I think it does show that God does care about, you know, secular, what we would call secular work. And that not all of our calling just has to be in the full-time ministry. Um, also, there's this concept I want to deal with of kind of a neutral ground, that, that, that uh, there is no neutral ground in our life that's our own, and then there's a split between our Christian life and then our work life, that type of thing, and that I think when you talk about the sac sacred-secular split, it leads to that, to say that, you know, God really doesn't care that much what I do in my work life, that's kind of my own. And, and the, the answer is no, God is sovereign and has created and defined everything in life and cares about all areas of life. As I said, in first, we've already read 1 Corinthians 10, 13, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And uh, Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So everything we, we do uh, needs to be unto God. There is no split between our work and our spiritual life. Um, but when we say we do everything in the Lord, it's like, what do we mean by that? How do we work that out? And so I, I think that it's both easier and harder to do this than we think. And I think it's easier to do all unto God because sometimes we put too much pressure on ourselves 
to make everything explicitly Christian. And we feel that, you know, if, if we're not leading a prayer group or, um, do, you know, using all the Christianese, praise God and amen, that God's not getting any value out of it. And again, we don't see sometimes how we're just doing our job um, and working hard our job, how the God sees value in them. And so my, what I would say is that as long as something lines up with God's word and done unto him, that is fine. That secular work can be done as worship and praise to God. Can making tables be a form of worship to God? Yes, as we see from Jesus. So there's a broader scope of activities that are biblical. And what's interesting, when Paul, as we just referenced, when talking about do all to God, is talking about eating and drinking. You know, he's not talking about a prayer group or something. Now, it's also harder to do all to God because the godly view of work is one of stewardship. And if we give all to God, then we're only stewards of what God owns, And we have a human tendency to be very selfish, and so I think this is very hard for us. Uh, C.S. Lewis brings us out in a wonderful quote. says, we try when we wake to lay the new day at God's feet. But before we finish shaving, it's become our day, and God's share in it is felt as a tribute which we must pay out of our own pocket. So the question is, how much does a steward own? None. So when we give God our tithes, we're not giving out of what's ours and then giving him a little portion of it. We're giving back to what he already owns. God cares about what we do with the 100%, not just that we give him the 10. And I think that's what it means to do all as unto God. We cannot say that I'm just going to give my church life to God and the rest is mine. Um, That's not how it goes. We have to see that, that we're all in the ministry all the time and that work for most of us is our calling. Um, so let's get into the question of what is my individual calling? You know, what's my individual ministry? And so there are biblical examples, namely Paul and Jeremiah, where God says, hey, I've called you to do this specifically, um, or Bezalel and the guys that were building the tabernacle. But for most of us, God doesn't specifically tell us. Much like in the parable of the talents, the master didn't really tell the guys what they were supposed to be doing. Um, But we all want that Damascus Road experience. Um, But for most of us, finding our purpose comes through the self-discovery of our talents and our personalities and our passions that God has gifted us with. So how do you find your calling? As Oz Guinness would say, think about what makes you happy to be you when you're doing it. What's your personality? What's your talents, your resources, passions, your heritage, your circles of influence? And I think that when we analyze those things, that there is unique calling for all of us. There's something that we're all best at. Um, And I think it's very encouraging. This encouraged me when I took evaluation of myself. What should I be doing? Where can I have the most impact? Um, I felt like the most impact that I would have is to coming back and running the family business and staying working right where I was already. And so what's interesting is the business world has discovered that there are many people doing work that they're not a good fit for and are miserable. Um, You know, being in business, we read about this all the time. Uh, Business writer Jim Collins calls this being in the wrong seat. Um, Because you can can add skill, you can... can, um, 
change your skills some, but there are certain fundamental traits about yourself you just can't change. And so and the concept's very simple, and I'm amazed, amazed at how many people get this wrong. We had hired a, a girl in our office to be in a customer service position, and um, after maybe just a month, uh, we noticed that she was turning her phone on Do Not Disturb um, and for all afternoon. And so we're asking her, you know, what, hey, what was going on? And she was like, well, I was getting too many phone calls and couldn't get my work done, so I was just turning my phone on Do Not Disturb. And I was like, oh, wait, it's a customer service position. The phone calls is the work, and so that's, that's not going to work. And so we, we were doing personality tests at the time, and so we're like, hey, let's look at her personality test. And we go look at it, and it shows she's an extreme introvert. And we're like, we just put a person who's an extreme introvert on a desk that's getting 50 calls a day. I go, it's not going to work out very well. Uh, and again, she was not very happy at the job. Um, so, <laughs> you know, people who I find that really find their calling or doing work that they're happy doing, whether they get paid for it or not. I hear people say that comment, I would do this even if I wasn't paid for it. And when I hear that, I normally think, hey, that's a person that's really found their calling. So there's a part of being honest with your talents, being honest about where you're skilled. And, you know, we already talked about the Romans 6, 8 passage, you know, those that prophesy to prophesy, service and servicing, teaching and teaching. And the idea is if, again, if you're called to be a teacher, then maybe you should be teaching and not trying to lead. You know, if you're called to be an exhorter, you know, uh, maybe not trying to prophesy. So I, I think that's a real um, uh, lesson that we need to learn sometimes. And I think culturally we get kind of pushed down common paths. You know, we're told, hey, we need to go to college and get the big executive job, and that's what you should do. And if you do that, then you're successful. And if you, you know, that's what everyone should search after when everyone's not gifted that way, you know. Um, in, in the United States, we have this concept, this frame, is you can be anything you want to be. And in reality, it's just not true. And it sounds so mean-spirited to say that. But Zig Ziglar had made this um, analogy I thought was really good that drew this out. He said, Shaquille O'Neal will never be a world-class jockey. <laughs> and he said, Willie Shoemaker, who is a world-class jockey and about that tall, will never dunk a basketball. Yeah. But that's not a problem because they were created to be world-class in something else. And so I think the idea is seek what you're a good fit for. Also, I think we should look at work as self-expression, that taking the gifts that God has given us and expressing them in a meaningful way. Eric Little, the hero of the movie Chariots of Fire and a runner, for those of you that have never seen the movie, said, God made me fast, and when I run, I can feel him smiling. And I think that's a really cool comment because it talks about in this way that as we express our talents and stuff, it really is worship back to God. And if work is self-expression, uh, then what's important is just doing the best you can. That money and success is not the goal of work, but just merely a byproduct of the work. And what's interesting is even secular business writers will say that money alone cannot be the goal of a job or business. And in fact, if you set up a business to which money is the goal, you can be sure that the mission's wrong. And that's what's coming out of the secular world. Now, success is important. You know, should we be working hard um, to do good work and gain success? Yes, but because we've been given talents 
and we should use them to the fullest. Because work is a reflection of us and God. You know, God doesn't get glory from failure or shoddy work. And so, work under God means that we do our best. It's just that the goal is not for the byproduct, the money. The goal is the self-expression and the end, the work itself. Another concept about work that's important, I believe, is work is how we show love for our neighbor. Max Weber wrote The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. He noticed that the Catholic French laborers would only work just enough to get their immediate needs met. But he also noticed that the Protestants, who had a very high sense of duty of work, would work harder and work longer and create a surplus that enriched both um, them and their communities. And so in this way, work is also community building in a way that we show love for our neighbor. Pastor Jeff talks about seeking the welfare of the city. And most of us will do this through our work. That, and a necessary component of work is that it's for the public good. I mean, you could say, if you're talking about self-expression, you could say hobbies are also self-expression. You know, how come I can't just spend time doing a hobby? Well, it's because it doesn't add um, to, the, to build society or build community. And so we see it today as just people living in leisure can't be the end. Because one, it doesn't bring happiness or fulfillment. It just leads to empty shelves. So at the individual level, we've already seen from Ephesians 4.28 that when we work, we have something to give to something else. So as far as showing love for our neighbor, how could we possibly help our neighbor if we aren't in a position ourselves to help them with resources that we have? And the last point about showing love for our neighbor is this concept of being salt and light in the world. The reality is that people that are not following Christ now, most of them are very unlikely to just arbitrarily walk through these doors. That for most people, the only place they'll see Christ is when we model it in our jobs in the world. And so when you think about that, it's very sobering and challenging is that when we think, oh, we're just working in our jobs, really we're um, a representative of Christ in the workplace, and that is part of our ministry, and we should take it very important. The last concept I'll leave with you is, and one that I think is very important, is that the Christian view of work adds value to all work, that um, the world really has no way of, other way of measuring um, value but by success. And so what you see is, you know, that's why the, the second question you're asked after what your name is, is what you do, right? Because that how, that's how we're valued in the world, is our success. If you have a good job and successful, you feel good about yourself. If you don't have a good job, maybe, you know, you don't feel as good about what you do. Um, and what's interesting is modern thinkers uh, even call for the eliminating of some lower paying jobs, saying that no one should do them. Uh, Richard Florida uh, wrote a book called The Rise of the Creative Class, and he made this comment that the, for a pushin, person to push a broom carries an indignity with it and is a waste of human capital. And I don't see that in the biblical command. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 20, and I'm sorry I'm going so fast, I'm not giving you too much of a chance to look this up. It says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were your bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can, gain your freedom. Avail yourself of the opportunity. 
For he who was called in the Lord is a bondservant, as a bondservant, is a freeman to the Lord. Likewise, he, is, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, I like this verse because it's saying we shouldn't seek to remain a slave. We should seek to improve ourselves and improve our situation. But if it's not happening, if it's slow in coming or not at all, it doesn't matter to our value that our purpose and worth in Christ remains the same, and we should work as unto the Lord. I think that's very affirming to those that are in work, and that if you work hard as unto the Lord, you have value to Christ, and you have purpose in Christ. Because if work is truly self-expression, then it's the expression that's important and not the result. And we can be the best we can be at any job. We can do any job as best as that job can be done. It's interesting that the Bible, when talking about this concept of the body, actually acknowledges, hey, there's some parts of the body that don't seem to be very useful, uh, but they're also necessary. The Bible affirms them as being necessary. An example that draws this out, I think, um, that I think of here is um, uh, many of you guys uh, know that some businesses will put someone on a corner with like a sign, like a sign holder hold us on mattress sale, you know. So there was a guy by our house, 101st Memorial. I know some of you guys have seen him. We called him mattress guy. And he'd be out there with the sign and he'd be spinning the sign. He'd be playing the air drums and waving at people and stuff. And me and our kids just love this guy. We'd honk at him. Hey, mattress guy, how, you know, how, how are you doing? You know? Um, and so one day we saw mattress guy and we drove a mile down the road and there's another guy with a sign just standing there smoking, looking <laughs> bored. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks, is that, you know, there's probably no job more boring than holding a sign. There's probably no job that you could say is more demeaning than having to sit there and hold a sign for somebody. But here, Mattress Guy has found a way to be creative with that job. He's found a way to make it fun for himself and everyone else. He's doing that job as best as can be done on the job and giving more value to his employers than the guy that's just sitting there smoking. And so I thought to myself, if Mattress Guy can turn what all of us would consider a demeaning job into an art form, then we, as Christians, can do even the worst job as unto the Lord with joy. And so, and it concerns me that culture downplays work as an evil necessity. I think it depreciates the activity that most of us spend the majority of our time in the place where chiefly our calling is. So in closing, I'll leave you with that the Christian view of work gives dignity and purpose to our work. And I hope this has encouraged you to engage uh, in your Christian walk right where you are and find your calling in Christ.